0: Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every more our sin Not this mercy
1: Welcome to all of you on a beautiful sunny morning. And we are planning to end our time of worship this morning as we have been by singing together outside. So again, there are uh, song sheets for you to pick up on your way through the doors at the end. And then we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. and we're going to be continuing our series on the Psalms of Ascent. So this evening we're looking at Psalm and. 23, 124 and 125. So I hope that you can join us for that. And then just further uh, advance notice for you that our church annual general meeting has been uh, rescheduled uh, from having been postponed a long, long time ago. It's now for uh, Thursday, June the 24th. So I hope that you can put that in your diary and uh, plan to be there with us. That's all I need to tell you by way of uh, current information, but we're now going to hear about something much, much more important than an AGM. Our first song tells the story of God's mercy and history delivered to us through his son, Jesus, who is King of Kings. God, from our hearts, we thank you for this great salvation, this redemption, life, and freedom that come to us through the suffering of the cross. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who puts these truths to work in our hearts, producing in us faith and perseverance, and even making us more like Jesus. We praise you that your work goes on. It goes on day after day in us as we hear your word and respond to it. And your work goes on around us too. We thank you. This world we live in is not a God-forsaken world. We thank you that the good news of Jesus continues to bring life to men, women, and children around the world. As they hear it and receive it. And so this morning, as we turn to you again, we ask that you will give us new hope and new confidence in the life-changing power of your love. We thank you that your love can continue to change us, and it can change those around us. Will you show us those truths again, for your own glory. Amen. We're going to have a Bible reading now that reminds us the Lord is worthy of our hope and trust. We're going to read Psalm 146. Psalm 146.
2: Psalm 146, praise the Lord, praise the Lord my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground, and on that very day their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked." The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the God.
1: Our next song celebrates the great love of our God. Give thanks to the Lord. is going to come and tell us about an opportunity we have as a church, uh, as as well as other churches around the UK, to demonstrate the love of our God.
3: So, many of you may have heard about what's been going on in Hong Kong over the last couple of years, but if you are completely unaware, then I'll just give you a quick brief summary. Uh, before the British government handed Hong Kong back over to China in 1997, China had agreed to allow the region political autonomy. It was under a system called a one country, two systems, and that was supposed to last for 50 years at least. But in recent years, Beijing has been cracking down on Hong Kong's freedoms, and protests have been uh, happening in the city, and they've drawn a lot of international criticism for this. And in 2020, Beijing imposed a national security law that gave broad new powers to punish any critics or any dissidents in Hong Kong. And it could fundamentally alter life for Hong Kong residents in the future. So in response to that, many residents in Hong Kong are actually looking to leave the country before things get worse. And due to the links that Hong Kong has had with the United Kingdom for so many years, the UK government has initiated a visa scheme to allow Hong Kong residents to come and live and work in the UK and to be fast-tracked for citizenship if they have a British national overseas passport. And they're expecting 300,000 to apply in the next year or two. I think up to 3 million could be eligible. Um, So... You might be saying, that's an interesting history lesson, but what does this have to do with us? So I'd like you to watch the little video uh, now, and that will tell us what it has to do with us.
4: Hospitality is one of the defining features of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus once said, I was a stranger and you welcome me in because what we do for the least of these we do for him. There's a huge opportunity right now for the church to show that Jesus loving hospitality to people who need our help. Around 130,000 people are expected to come to the UK from Hong Kong just this year alone. That would be the largest and fastest planned migration of people to the UK from outside of Europe since Windrush. And 50 years later, we know what a terrible job we did as a nation when it came to the Windrush generation. Let's learn from those mistakes in order to offer this new group all the help that they need. Moving to the UK in the middle of a pandemic, when you might struggle a little bit with your English, when you come with lots of skills in a time of mass unemployment, and while race-based hate crime is going through the roof against people of Chinese appearance, there really needs to be a concerted effort to make sure this group of people feel welcome. So we'd love to invite you to be a Hong Kong Ready Church. Wouldn't it be fantastic if someone moved into your area and their first call was to your church, asking for help with some of the simple things like how to register with your local school or the GP. You might have people in your congregation who would love to get involved with this with a little bit of training. They can really make a difference in someone's lives, even if they're shielding or they're housebound, they could be on the end of a phone and offer someone the help and hospitality they need. Friends, let's fill a map with thousands of churches who are ready to offer the help and welcome this new group from Hong Kong need. Together, we can definitely make a difference. Thank you.
3: So what we would like to do is sign up our church to be one of these Hong Kong ready churches. So that means that we would be committing as a church to welcoming Christians who might be coming from Hong Kong and looking for a congregation to join if they come to our area. It might be offering uh, to help new arrivals settle in by training up members of our church to become welcomers and friends to the, the people who might move here. Uh, So what we need is we need one individual who would be willing to be a coordinator. Don't get scared. That doesn't mean you have to do everything. Uh, But that coordinator's name would go on the website, the UKHK website, next to our church. And you would be the first point of contact if someone moved into the area and wanted to look up our church or ask for assistance. Then the coordinator would link the phone caller into other volunteers in the church and you might be someone who could volunteer to help someone who's got children and they need to find a local school and you might be able to say I know about local schools I can help with that you might be someone who says I can help people find a GP I can help people find the grocery stores Um, I can just help have a cup of tea and be a friend to someone I can help fill out forms Uh, there's lots of things you can do and that you can volunteer to do Um, so we would like to Uh, also invite the newcomers to our church whether they're believers or not and that's something of course all of us can do is be a friend and invite them to come along so when you leave there's going to be a sign-up sheet outside in the car park and you can indicate if you're interested in volunteering and what sort of ways you might be able to help. And again, it might just be someone on the other end of the phone to offer help with the local area, um, how to navigate the area, or just a friendly voice, someone to talk to. But the aim is that we might be able to show the love of Jesus to people who might be immigrating into our area this year. So thank you.
1: Now the Sunday school are going to be Uh, Moving next door. How do I love God? That's an important question, and the fact that we're all here this morning means we've probably all asked that question on some level. It's a question we're going to think about this morning, and really the question has two parts to it. When we ask, how do I love God, we're asking what's involved in loving God? What attitude do I need? What action do I need to take? to demonstrate love for him, and we're probably also asking, what will produce that love for God in me? Because I'm not sure it's there, or at least it's not there as much as it probably should be. How do I get it? So what's involved in loving God, and what will produce that love in me? Our passage this morning helps us with both parts of the question. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and we're going in a moment to read from verse 12 of chapter 10 to the end of the chapter in verse 22. But before we read, it's important to remember what came just before this passage. Moses has been showing the Israelites they need to let go of the idea of their own righteousness. That idea is a myth. It's not true. And Moses showed it's not true by pointing to their rebellion against God. Their natural disposition is not righteousness. Their natural disposition is a stubborn refusal to bow to God's authority and listen to His instruction. And God Himself summed that up by saying they are a stiff-necked people. And as evidence for that, Moses pointed to what happened at Mount Sinai. Just after receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites made an idol for themselves. And that wasn't just a minor thing. Their relationship with the Lord their God was like a marriage. And making the idol was the equivalent of tearing up their marriage certificate before the ink was even dry on the paper. The only thing that saved Israel from destruction in that situation was the intercession of Moses and the phenomenal mercy of God. God renewed the covenant Israel had broken, and He assured them they still had a future. Despite their unrighteousness, God would fulfill His promises. They would still inherit the promised land of Canaan. So as we come now to the verses we're going to read this morning, we're coming to them after a passage that proclaims the wonder of God's mercy and love. These words come to people saved by His love. And now the question is, what response does God require? What does God ask for? Chapter 10, verse 22. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good? To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet, the Lord set his affection on your ancestors, and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in egypt fear the lord your god and serve him hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name he is your praise he is your god who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes your ancestors who went down into egypt were seventy in all and now The Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is God's word. And it's about the life-changing power of God's love. But that's not where this passage starts. It starts with how we are to respond to God's love. You can see that in verse 12, where Moses says, And now, Israel... In other words, after what we've just heard about God's great mercy shown to unrighteous people, now in light of that mercy, what does the Lord your God ask of you? The word ask may be a little weak for what's being said. Require might be better, or even demand. But whichever word we use, it's a question that many, many people never even consider. For many people, if they believe in God at all, their focus is on what they ask or require of Him. They've got a long list of expectations for God to live up to, a long list of outcomes He had better deliver for them. It never enters their thinking that He might ask or require anything of them. But as I said earlier, the fact that you and I are here this morning suggests we're at least open to the idea that God might require something from us. And our passage this morning tells us what that something is. Our loving God asks us for everything. Look again at verse 12. What does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today. I'm not sure those verses could be any more comprehensive. They really do cover everything, not only actions, but attitudes as well. In fact, notice how actions and attitudes are mentioned alternately. Fear the Lord. An attitude. Walk in obedience to Him. Action. Love Him. An attitude. Serve Him. An action that also involves your heart and soul. Observe or keep His commands. Action. Attitudes and actions are intertwined here. They go together. It's the whole package that God asks for. Thinking nice thoughts about him isn't enough. Neither is doing big things for him. He wants our hearts and our hands. He requires a comprehensive devotion. All that we are and all that we do. And even as we say that, we have to remember the context. These words are spoken to people who've just been reminded they have no righteousness of their own to depend on. They're dependent on God's mercy. Once they acknowledge that, then they're ready to hear this call to give God everything. So if you're here this morning and you're still under the illusion that you can make yourself right with God if you're still under the impression you can do something to earn his love, then for you, the first step is to let go of that. To recognize only God's mercy can save you from destruction. Acknowledge that, then seek his mercy by putting your trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God asks of you right now. But once you've taken that step, then you're ready to hear what these verses are saying. Having received God's mercy through faith in Christ, now as a man or woman loved by God, you're ready to hear this call to give him everything. This call is for those who've already obtained mercy in Christ. And if you've been following along as we've gone through the book of Deuteronomy, you realize this call to give everything is not new. We already heard it back in chapter 6, in the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. When we looked at chapter 6, we summarized that as a call to total love. So the requirement here is not new. But what is new in this passage is the insight we're given on how to fulfill the command. And that's really what we need, isn't it? We know God asks us for everything, total love shown in attitudes and actions, but how? That's the question. What is the pathway to fulfilling this requirement? The answer comes in the rest of our passage. Our loving God asks us for everything, and focusing on His love will produce the response He asks for. In other words, when you and I hear that God requires everything from us, the way forward is not to grit our teeth and just try harder. The way forward is to deepen our understanding and appreciation of His love for us so that our hard hearts begin to melt, our stiff necks begin to soften, and we respond with love to our loving God. Look how that's presented to us here. First, focusing on God's love will produce a commitment to His instruction. Verses 14 and 15 tell us about God's love. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet, the Lord set His affection on your ancestors and loved them, and He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. The joy of these verses comes from laying the two truths in them side by side. First, the truth of God's untouchable power and position, alongside the truth of His choosing and loving a particular people. The first truth is that God could not be higher in His power and position. Verse 14 is saying, there's not a square millimeter of the universe that isn't His and under His control. And however many layers there might be in the heavens, from the lowest to the highest, they all belong to God. We saw earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, he is God unlimited. And his power and authority extend from the furthest star and beyond, out there, all the way down to the tiniest amoeba on this planet. The earth and everything in it are his too. As we've been singing recently, he is the king in need of nothing. It's all his already but remarkably, verse 15 sets out a second truth. This king in need of nothing chose to set his affection on a particular people. Yes, there's a sense in which he loves all people, so John's gospel can speak about God loving the world. But he has chosen a particular people to benefit from his saving love beginning with just one man, Abraham, then Abraham's descendants, including these men, women, and children who are camped on the banks of the Jordan River, but then expanding to those from every tribe and nation who become descendants of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. So putting these truths together, God who owns the whole shebang, From the highest heavens to the earth and everything in it, he has singled out just some for his saving love. And if you've taken hold of his promise of salvation in Christ, then you belong to that people who are loved with an everlasting love, loved with a love that will not let you go. And as you and I focus on that great love, to the point where it works its way deep down into us, it will lead to the response it's called for in verse 16, which says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The imagery there is pretty jarring, if we stop to consider it. Literally, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. What on earth does that mean? Or Some of you might be thinking, do we really need to talk about what it means? Well, yes, we do. Because circumcision is a key concept in the Bible. Starting with the more obvious form of it, the kind performed externally on male bodies. The Bible never advocates, nor does it even mention, female circumcision, which is practiced in some cultures today. That practice is better described as female genital mutilation. The Bible deals with male circumcision, which I'm sure is a painful procedure, but it is not a harmful one. It's often carried out today for medical purposes. And in fact, it's been widely practiced all through history. It certainly wasn't invented by the Israelites. It was used by other cultures in the ancient world. But God chose to give it a special significance for Abraham's descendants. It became the sign of the covenant between God and his people. Why might God have chosen it for the sign of the covenant? Well, God's promises were for Abraham and his offspring, literally his seed. So it makes sense that the sign of those covenant promises would be connected to the part of the body that produced offspring. But it's important to know from the very beginning, circumcision was never intended to be merely a procedure carried out in the body. The mark on the body was hidden under the person's clothes. It was basically an invisible mark as far as other people were concerned. So how did someone give evidence that they belonged to God's people? They didn't display the mark on their body. The evidence came through the life they lived. They displayed their circumcision through a life of obedience to God. And by the time we get to the New Testament, physical circumcision is no longer required for God's people. The physical mark had served its purpose by then. It wasn't needed anymore. But the point to grasp here is that Moses' focus on the heart isn't really anything new. Circumcision was always about more than just a mark on the body. And here Moses is just spelling that out. God asks for more than a mark on your body. He wants your heart given over to him. And a heart given over to him is a heart committed to keeping his instructions. That comes out in the contrast in verse 16. The verse says, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The reason the people were called stiff-necked back in chapter 9 was because they resisted God's instruction. And here, circumcision of the heart is the opposite of that. And getting into the nitty-gritty of the detail, we saw the command is literally circumcise the foreskin of your hearts, And that implies there's a barrier around the heart, like a defensive skin so God's instruction doesn't get through. It doesn't find a resting place in the heart. So saying, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, means remove that barrier around your heart. Lose that defensiveness and that resistance to God until you have a heart that's open to Him. A heart that welcomes His instruction and then follows it. And what's interesting is, later in the book, Moses says this, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. It's God who removes the barrier around our heart so that hard hearts turn into soft hearts that are receptive to his instruction. So why, here in chapter 10, does Moses command the people to circumcise their own hearts? If it's God's work, why call the people to do it? I think the answer is that God does this work in us as we give ourselves to focusing on his great love for us. That's why Moses has pointed to God's love in verses 14 and 15. Focus on his wonderful love for you, love that is undeserved, love you can't earn, And it's all the more wonderful for that, that the king in need of nothing simply chose to love you. Focus on his gracious love for you, and as you do that, he will develop in you a commitment to his instruction. Your stiff-necked stubbornness and resistance will turn into soft-hearted responsiveness. You and I can't change our hearts, but we can focus on the divine love that does change our hearts, and as we do, our hearts will be changed. Pay no attention to God's great love, and your heart will stay hard and unresponsive. In verses 17 to 22, this truth is developed in terms of a commitment to the vulnerable. Again, look how this section starts, like the previous section, with a focus on God's power and God's love. Verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Whatever imagined gods are out there, whatever other supernatural beings there might be, the Lord your God is God over them all. And whatever human lords there are, whatever rulers and governments have power on this earth, the Lord your God is Lord over them all. As we saw earlier, there's an emphasis here on God's high and lofty position. He's the great God, mighty and awesome. And again, as we saw earlier, that truth makes what comes next truly remarkable. This great God, mighty and awesome, is committed to those who are not great, mighty, or awesome by any standard. He's for the little people, the people who are easily preyed on, easily taken advantage of, the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner residing among you. In the context, that probably means foreigners who have joined the community of God's people. They've given up their idol worship, and they've committed to worship the Lord. And it would be easy for those people to be seen as second-class members of the community. Just as it would be easy for the fatherless and the widows in Israel to be sidelined and overlooked just because they had no protector and no defender. But the message here is they do have a protector and defender. Their well-being is important to the one who's at the very top of the pecking order. The great God, mighty and awesome, is their protector and defender. And this is not just a business-like interest. Verse 18 says, he loves these vulnerable people. So in the flow of this passage, we might say, if God has a special love for his people, he has an extra special love for the most vulnerable among his people. Sometimes we talk about a person's head being turned by the possibility of wealth or promotion. And we naturally gravitate to people who might be able to give us those things. Our heads are easily turned. But God's head will not be turned like that. Everything's his anyway. He is not distractible when it comes to his attention and care for those at the bottom of the pile and you and I are to be like him. Verse 18 said, God loves the foreigner. Verse 19 says, and you are to love those who are foreigners. I think we're to take the fatherless and the widow as being included there. We're to share God's love for them too. But the reason verse 19 focuses on loving foreigners is because the Israelites have experienced God's love when they themselves were foreigners in Egypt. Not too many years ago, they were the outcasts. They were the people given no rights. No one spoke up for them. No one cared about giving them justice. They were the downtrodden, the lowest But when no one else would fight for them, the great God, mighty and awesome, did. Moses reminds the people in verse 21, God performed great and awesome wonders to get them out of Egypt, to free them from the slavery and oppression they were under. And not only that, he turned them into a great nation. Verse 22 says, there were only 70 of them when they went down to Egypt. But not only did God free them, even during their low situation, when they were despised, when they were being worked ruthlessly by their Egyptian masters, even in the midst of that, God multiplied them into a people as numerous as the stars in the sky. So if anyone knows about God's commitment for the vulnerable, it's the Israelites. And as they focus on God's love for them, they will come to share His love for the vulnerable. Again, we're seeing focusing on God's love will produce the response He asks for. The way to develop genuine concern for those in need is not to just try harder. It's to carefully let the truth of God's love for us and for them settle and take hold of our hearts. We had nothing that could turn the Lord's head, if I can put it like that. In terms of the kingdom of heaven, We were foreigners, we were outsiders, we didn't belong, we had nothing to offer, and yet he came for us, he lifted us, and now he calls us his sons and daughters. He calls us co-heirs with his son, Jesus. He invites us to call him, this mighty and awesome God, our Father, And as you and I focus on that truth, how can we help but look around us and begin to feel compassion and commitment to those who are in need? Those who have no human protector, no human helper. As I've said, the emphasis here is most likely on the vulnerable among the Israelite community. But it is certainly not limited to that. We find the same thing in the New Testament. In Galatians, Paul says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So that is the biblical teaching. We start with those in the family of believers. But we don't stop there. As we have opportunity, we help anyone in need. Which ties in with what we heard earlier about men and women arriving in the UK from Hong Kong. They certainly belong to the all people Paul mentions. And we certainly have an opportunity to help. So I encourage you to consider getting involved with that. Even just sign up to get more information about it. And as you consider it, put into practice what we've been dealing with this morning. Focus on God's love for you, and it will produce the response that God asks for. Listen to how Ray Ortland describes this. In the words I'm going to put on the screen, he was originally speaking about the Apostle Paul but I've tweaked his words just a bit to apply them to all Christians. I think this sums up what we've been thinking about this morning. We don't minister for God's approval, but out of God's approval. We minister not out of emotional emptiness, but out of emotional fullness. The felt smile of God Gives us the personal objectivity to love people rather than use them. If we're standing on the emotional bedrock of God's overflowing approval in Christ, then we can love people. God's love has life changing power, not just in terms of the moment of our salvation. But in terms of life after that moment of salvation. As you and I focus on God's great love for us, a love all the greater because we didn't earn it or deserve it. As we focus on His love, slowly that focus will produce the response He asks from us. We will grow in our commitment to His instruction we will grow in our commitment to the vulnerable. The more we delight in God's overflowing approval of us in Christ, the more we consider the wonder that the great God has set His affection on us, the wonder that He smiles on us, then we will love to obey the instruction of this smiling God. All his instruction, even the bits that seem inconvenient, it will become our pleasure to obey. And we will love to care for and support those who could so easily be sidelined and overlooked and even despised. We will develop a love for those people because we know the God who smiles on us smiles on them too. One of the most powerful ways that we can bring our focus onto God's love is through music and songs. And the last two songs we're going to sing help us focus on God's great love for us. We're going to Exit through these doors and sing, first of all, My Jesus, my Savior, and then, Here is Love, vast as the ocean.